Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of What Next. And today we have a really extraordinarily special individual. His name is Dave Patnaik. He grew up in the United States. He is of Indian heritage. And Dave can be described as a multidisciplinary man of many talents. Uh, let me name some of them. He is the CEO of Jump Associates, which is a leading independent strategy and innovation firm. He is a board member of Conscious Capitalism. He has been a trusted advisor to CEOs of some of the most admired companies, including Starbucks, Target, Nike, Universal, Virgin. He's a frequent keynote speaker. His writing has appeared in Business Week, Forbes, and Fast Company. He's an author of a book called Wired to Care, which both Fast Company and Business Week named as Books of the Year. And the not-so-insignificant writer Malcolm Gladwell called Wired to Care just what we need for the lean years ahead. And when he's not doing all of these things, he is also an adjunct professor at a small u- little university at, called Stanford, and he is somewhere in that neighborhood today when he is speaking with us. Welcome, Dave. It is so great to be with you, Rashad. Uh, I love your podcast, and, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for being on it. You know, we are fortunate to have amazing guests like you who we managed to trick into this. So thank you for coming <laughs> on. Before we go into your three predictions, which are very intriguing, is how in the world do you do everything that you are doing? And can you tell us what made you you? I think for most of us in life, right, if we're really lucky at some point, we figure out what our purposes, what our what a point for being on planet Earth is all about, right? And for me, it's very much about a, a commitment to teaching, to learning, to loving, to growing. And so I've just kind of followed my nose in, in, in years to try and get to that. And, and that, that's led me to teach at Stanford. That's led me to spend time advising clients on how they can help their companies to learn. Um, and it's helped me to, to join beautiful organizations like Conscious Capitalism, which, are, you, you know, the, the, the two seconds on that, it's an organization of companies that are both trying to do good as they do well. And so that, that's just very much aligned with, with my purpose. Got it. What made you write your book? You know, it, this is going back a, a number of years. And so you have to you know, put it within the context that at that time, the idea of empathy was not seen as something relevant in business, right? And I think now we're seeing a lot of it. But I looked at the clients that we had worked with, right? And what we found was that the biggest differentiator between companies that were able to do great things and those that were just spent time arguing or putting out something dilute or mediocre was their intuition for the world around them, for the people they were serving beyond their walls, right? So that the people who work at Nike are all athletes who happen to have a day job, as opposed to the people at other shoe companies who are, you know, maybe consumer packaged goods marketers who happen to make shoes, right? And personally, I was shocked by this because I'm a consultant, right? And, and so we do all of these great strategy things. And, you know, what we found at Nike was that even if the strategy work, even if a market research report wasn't very good, the shoe ended up being great nonetheless, because everyone who was working on that running shoe was a runner themselves. They had an intuition and a vibe that the rest of us didn't. Um, 
and I was first shocked about it. Then I was interested in it. Then I became a student of it. Um, and that's what led me to write Wired to Care, which was about how widespread empathy uh, can lead to business growth. And which year was that book issued? Uh, this is going back now. I guess in 2009, the Got book it. came yeah. out. So therefore, you clearly... Yeah. Empathy at that time would be something you'd hear about a character from Mars or something of the sort. It yeah, as... or at least some very nice and well-meaning hippies, but nobody in the business of business, to be sure. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that clearly, having written a book on empathy in 2009, and now it is something that we talk about, and it's a word that we hear often in 2023, but we've heard it probably from 2019 onwards, you seem to be thinking ahead. And your first prediction is something about ahead. So can you tell us about your first prediction? For, for me, Jump's purpose, the company that I co-founded, our purpose is to transform lives through learning and growth, right? And what does that mean? You know, we work with a lot of very large companies that are great at doing things, but they're often not so great at learning new things. And so if they're lucky, they have a visionary leader who steps outside and, and is, has the humility to say, hey, would you help us to learn new things about the world that, that's going around us? And very quickly, you come to a realization that it's not just about the learning, right? Because learning is new data on the hard drive, right? But you need something else, which is an upgrading of your meaning-making system, right? Which we would call growth, right? And so you need both learning and growth, which is why our purpose is to transform lives through learning and growth, right? And, and, and so many of us are either not learning quickly enough, not adding new stuff on the hard drive quickly enough because it, 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 it doesn't fit in with the data we already have, right? And so we find that, you know, un, uh, displeasurable. Or on the other hand, we're, we're having a lot of new data, but we're, we still view it and we still make meaning of it in the way we did five years ago. Right? And so the questions I'm always asking people are, number one, what, you know, tell me something you've learned in the last year. But then second, tell me how you've grown in the last year. Right? And Because we need both. Otherwise, we'll, we will be swept behind by the future. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, I have identified there are nine reasons why people work in a company. Mm -hmm. And the first three are money, fame, and power. <laughs> and, you know, for younger people, it might be money and recognition and autonomy, but that's what it is. Yeah. And the next three, which you were early on, uh, was purpose, values, and connections, right? Whether they right. Uh, align with the purpose of the company, whether they agree with the values, whether they feel valued, and whether they feel connected, you know, whether it is to their business, their customers, clients, bosses. And those were what were considered six. Three that arose very significantly, it has always been around, and you've been early on this, uh, which it became clear to me during COVID was basically the next three were freedom, story, and growth. Uh, mm. And it was basically give us more freedom, right? And I tell people our minds are like champagne corks. Once you take them out of the bottle, they swell, you can't fit them back in. <laughs> and what's, that's what people are trying to do. I said, that's too late, which is, you know, freedom. Yeah. Story is, how does this company or what I'm doing fit into the story of my life versus just me fitting mm -hmm. into the story of the company? But the single most important factor is the factor that you mentioned, which is growth. 
how do I grow my skills? How do I grow as a person? How do I help people grow around me? And that becomes a very important factor. So you're absolutely true, which is learning. And then how do you take that learning and apply it to growing? And then that becomes a very interesting loop. And, you know, the, the research on this is, is quite disappointing, right? There's a fellow named Arjuris who wrote a Harvard Business Review article about this many years ago called Why Smart People Can't Learn. And it turns out that the, the mechanisms for learning are, you know, orthogonal to the mechanisms for growing, right? It, it, the, the way people typically learn, you know, going back for generations and certainly through all of our college experiences is listen and repeat. Hear something and then put it out back. Or when you were in school, it was read a book and write an essay, but that's basically a written form of listen and repeat. Growth, actual upgrading of one's meaning-making system happens in a totally different way. It's not listen and repeat. It's do and reflect. It's just kind of put yourself in harm's way you know, to enter into a zone of discomfort and then not just do that and then jump into the next zone and the next one. And then you're just an adrenaline junkie. It's to put yourself into discomfort and then take the moment and step back and reflect. You say, well, like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> How did that make me feel? What, what did I take away from that? I, I see folks all the time, we, you know, CEOs who we work with who are so good at the listen and repeat and, and, and relatively, let's say, ad hoc about the do and reflect. Um, and in this day that and age, that is true. You definitely you need both, both of them. them. And I'm going to steal this listen plus repeat, do plus reflect. That is amazing. I mean, it will change how you map out your week if you say that you care about both. We have to do both. We have to both learn and grow. And just learning without growing is nothing. And it's very hard to grow if you don't do any learning. Yeah. And I don't mean to give you a hard time on that, right? But with the, with the question of predictions, I hate making predictions because one of the things that we tell people, and this is not a new idea, Peter Schwartz discovered this 40 years ago, which is the way to navigate the future is don't try and predict it. Right. Don't predict the future. Imagine multiple scenarios about what might come to pass and figure out how you would thrive, no matter which of those things happen. Exactly. Exactly. And yet, I think the reason people love predictions is either out of an instinct of fear, which was the, you know, the pandemic start, like, oh, God, just tell me what's going to happen. This is making me crazy. And the uncertainty, you know, the, the predictions act as a medication to that. It's, it's a medication, but it's also in a world of chaos and confusion. Can somebody simplify on what I should focus on? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's the second reason, which is right. you're a lazy brain, right? Is This is too hard. I don't want to have to think about it. Just lay it out for me. And, and both of those instincts will not prepare you for the future that's coming. I, I actually have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm leaning in with curiosity. If I had only one prediction and it's, it's this, I'm pretty sure that the next 10 years are going to determine the happiness of the human condition for the next thousand years. And immediately, as I say that, I want to throw up in my mouth because that's exactly the kind of bullshit that people say on podcasts. I can't escape it. It's a little bit like the empathy insight that I had, you know, 15 years ago, right? That, that empathy actually matters and drives business, right? The idea that the next 10 years will affect the next thousand 
right? Because of what? Because of climate change, because of artificial intelligence, and because of social fragmentation in a way that, you know, you don't see, you know, every decade. I am highly skeptical of people who make statements like I just did, because historical uniqueness is is a is its own form of narcissism. Yeah, because everybody believes they're living in that special time, and oh my God, this is the special time. Yeah, right? exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it it does feel, and maybe it's because we are living today. We, you know, there is this basic feeling. To your point, there's everything from climate change to advances in technology to polarization, to at least my sense is that at least you know one of my you know, predictions has basically been that one of the reasons that we are having the struggle we have, and this may be something we figure out in the next 10 years, is that our systems of laws and governance are set up for 1945 and not 2025. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you think about most of our institutions, they are frozen at the end of World War II. France and the United Kingdom, with a total population of 120 million people, basically have a seat on the Security Council while India with 1.4 billion people. And I think that's part of what I try to explain to people that, hey, listen, we are are living in this multipolar world. And the reality of it is when 75% of the world's population lives outside the West, they aren't going to sit there and say, tell us what to do next, right? Uh, Which is a key thing. But yes, it's a very unusual time. And, you know, one of the key things is you say that leaders, in order to, I guess, forge forward, will need to focus five to seven years down the road versus just now. Why? We've now done these kind of like long-term future strategies for many companies across all sorts of different industries. And what you find is um, future thinking three years out, five years out is kind of a waste of time. Three years is essentially now. That's the present in, in what's what's happening. 10 years out, 15 years out, it starts to be more of a, of an ethereal exercise because people are like, well, I'll even see if I'm around then. It, it doesn't matter. About seven years out right, is the magic number. And really around seven and a half is if you dial it into there, it is long enough to see massive disruption and change settle out, but short enough to still mess with your life personally. And when I say that, the vast majority of human beings start to you know, fall asleep. And the reason for that is because we're not, we're not future focused. The, the fundamental challenge of what you do on this podcast and what I do in working with companies setting strategy is that only about 16% of human beings are future focused, right? We've done the research on this. There's great stuff out of Stanford on this. 16% of the world sees that the world is changing and says we have to get moving. There's another 14% of the world who are decidedly past focused. These are the people who will tell you Uber is just a blip, Rashad. Taxi cabs will never go away. Or, you, you know, like forget Airbnb. How many people slept in a Marriott last night? Right. And so they just look at what has happened as the guidelines or the fact base for what's going to happen. A lot of management consultants make a lot of money on a past focused mindset. They call it being data driven, by the way. But then the majority of us, 70% of the human population, is present-focused. We're not future-focused. We're not past-focused. We're just living on what we see in front of us now. And when you tell those folks, 70% of human beings, the world is changing. You know, In business, they'll tell you things like, Rashad, you're absolutely right. The world is changing, but we need to focus on this quarter. 
And that is the worst of all three possible choices that you could make. If you think the future focus guys, they get moving. The past focus people, you can disprove them. The present focus people, they are talking like the future focus people and acting like the past focus people. It's like they have accepted your premise and they're driving over the cliff anyway. Got it. And for that, for us, it's a death sentence. It is. It is. It's one of the reasons, I mean, I write also, besides the podcast, I do a Sunday Substack thought letter, and it's called The Future Does Not Fit in the Containers of the Past, right? There you um, go. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that's definitely uh, agree. Now, you can you identify companies that have either done this well or not done this and therefore have had trouble? You know, uh, one of the companies that I love, and I, I'm a, I'm completely corrupt in this because um, they're one of my clients. Full disclosure, but if you check out Universal Music Group, right? So Universal is is a record company. They're the number one uh, music company in the world by an order of magnitude. They represent everyone from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to Tra- uh, Drake and Taylor Swift. And so they, they, they truly are the dominant player in, in, in music. The vast majority of the stuff you hear when you stream things on Spotify or Apple Music come from Universal. This was a company that was given up for dead, right, just a little over a decade ago because you remember Napster and yes. all those things and music companies don't need to exist. And, that's, and um, their leadership looked out in the future and said, what's going to be around the corner and, and how, you know, is there something new? In fact, they helped to create this, the streaming uh, ecosystem that we live in now. And the thing that always has struck me about all of their leaders broadly across the board is they are constantly obsessed with what's going to happen five years out, seven years out. And that's what has allowed them to thrive in a way that maybe other uh, media and entertainment companies just haven't. Absolutely. You also are a big fan of Microsoft? You, you know, I am a big fan of Satya Nadella. All right. I'm also a big fan of, of Microsoft as a, as a customer, right? I, I use it. But the, but the biggest gift that Nadella has done for Microsoft is he's taught that company how to learn again, right? To say that, no, no, we need to figure this out. We can't just bang our chest in the kind of old school Steve Ballmer yeah. you know, approach to life. Yeah, his, his big belief right? is in the growth mindset. Which is a in a know, growth mindset right. and in a mindset of curiosity, right? I mean, I, I love it when he said, you know, we have to go from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. a very different stance to move through the world with. Well, you know, one of the, recently I gave a presentation to a, an, another incredible company. And I basically said, you know, what Microsoft did and what Satya did, among other things, besides getting rid of stack ranking and being open and investing in GitHub and a bunch of other places, which is why, you know, to your point, they're also set up for this AI age, is he basically closed down the Windows operating division because he didn't mm-hmm. want the world to be seen through Windows, which, you know, as someone at McDonald's said, is the equivalent of us no longer making Big Macs. How do the 70% of people who are focused on the present, how do they start thinking about the future? Is there anything that they can do? Is it this listen and repeat and do reflect? This is certainly a product of, of, your, of your neuroscience, of your wiring, but neuroplasticity is a beautiful thing. You can change how you see the world, right? And the biggest thing to do is to get outside and experience things that are happening at the margins of society, right? As, as a great person once said, the, the future exists today, it's just unevenly distributed. 
And the biggest thing you can do is go and see and feel and experience what that's like. Right? When we've done work on, you know, for example, the, the future of technology or the future of gaming, for example, um, sitting in California, it makes no sense for us to go study people in London because they're not so different from us. Uh, it's also, you know, not necessarily useful to go to Japan because behaviors in Japan are just strange and different than any place on, on planet Earth. Go to South Korea. Because what we found over and over again is that if you understand behaviors of how people interact with technology in South Korea, there it is very often a precursor of how people in, in the West will uh, be interacting with technology in just a few years' time. So, you know, it, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm, I am decidedly present focused. The first step is get outside, right? <laughs> Start to see what's going on in the world. Got it. Got it. Well, I think this whole idea of, you know, that the future is already here, but not, you know, evenly distributed. I think it was William Gibson or someone who said that. I, th I think that's right, right? Things like future, you know, thinking, right, just seems like so out there and, and, and so esoteric, right? And yet what we find is the most successful leaders spend time thinking about it as a, as a habit and practice, right? You know, Larry Page at Google, you know, talks about how, um, he would spend every Friday afternoon with the with these people working on this operating system on with the Android guys. They they had acquired Android and so they're working on that. And he he says he felt so guilty because here they are running this giant ad paid search, right? And he would go off and play around every Friday afternoon with his mobile operating system. And he said I felt so guilty because I, I felt like I was wasting my time. But in retrospect, I look back on it. I'm like. I'm so glad I did that because right? that's that was actually the you know one of yes. the future platforms of our business. So I mean I, I take away if you, if you're not doing it enough if it if you're not if you don't feel bad about how you're doing it you're probably not doing it enough. Got it. So I think the three pieces of advice is a step outside because some of it is happening in different places and obviously while resident cultural and country differences but you can find the future emerging in different places, which is number one. Number two is one which I basically said, which is the future comes from the slime and not the heavens. So stop hanging out with senior <laughs> people like you. It's the most incestuous yeah. thing you can possibly do. And most companies lose stuff because senior people kiss each other all the time and they completely miss mm -hmm. that everything, you know, IBM didn't see Microsoft, did not see Google, did not see Meta, right? Because they kept, you know, benchmarking against their current categories and their current competitors. And so that's, you know, sort of the second. And the third one, I think, to your point, to a great extent, is if you are not feeling a little bit queasy about how you're spending some of your time, maybe you're not spending your time the right way. So I guess one of the key things is try to occasionally at work do stuff that makes you throw up. I, I think that's true. And then after you do it, reflect on it so you actually get the growth. Now, I'm going to speak about something that you are obviously early writing about, which was purpose and caring and empathy. Right. And purpose has become a very, very double-edged sword year. I've, uh, I've had guests uh, who have basically said, for instance, the advertising industry has like lost all idea of what they're doing instead of selling products and services. They're basically talking about purpose. Mark Pritchard, who is the head of P&G last year at Cannes, basically said, hey, we need to focus on products and sales versus this other kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. This year, apparently, at Cannes, the judges were told, don't start giving awards to things that aren't real products and services. 
you know, today I have a feeling that people like, you know, Bud Light and Target and others are sort of struggling with this and people are wondering whether Unilever has lost the plot by focusing too much on purpose. So tell me a little bit about is purpose overblown? Is it hype? Is it the right thing badly applied? What has happened? Yeah, I, I mean, here this is another one of the things which is you should be very skeptical of a present focus crowd's opinion about where the world is going, right? And what we do know is that the world is going towards, you know, having an understanding of what individuals and groups stand for. We're not just buying things, we're buying into things more and more. And the overwhelming majority of consumers in the United States and in the UK, right, want to know what a company stands for, want to know what a company's values are so that they can then make their decisions and vote with their pocketbook, right? That is just the way the world is is going. But that doesn't mean that you can just wade into it sloppily. You have to do things, you know, w with clarity. And, and the way at Jump that we see it, it's about three different things. It's about strategy, it's about culture, and it's about leadership. Right? So from a point of view of strategy, you as an organization need to be clear on what your purpose is, on, on why you exist beyond making money, and then use that purpose and the values you define as both a beacon and a filter to decide, okay, here are things we're going to take our stand on. These are things we're not going to take our stand on. The, the challenge with Bud Light is that it just seemed from left field, right? I, I have n no issue with transgender rights. I'm actually a huge proponent of that. And yet for Bud Light, it seemed like, what does this have to do with us or our audience that we're trying to serve, right? It just seemed completely random. Ironically, ironically, the company that's been very good about that historically is Target, yep. right? Target, their purpose, right, is to help all families discover the joy of everyday life. And they mean all families. And so that's why you have black history displays in February in Target. And that's why they've had, you know, pride displays dur during Pride Month every year. So what was the problem? The problem was one of execution. Because it turns out that rainbow t-shirts are just fine for Target guests, right? And transgender accepting uh, bathing suits are just a beyond the line for many guests, Got it. Again, I have no problem with that. I'm, I'll take all comers. But target guests think that's beyond the line. And knowing where that line is, is a question of execution, which means it's, an, it's a question of culture. And then what about leadership? In some cases, it appears that we suddenly had oscillating leadership, where they went oscillating from one position to another position, which makes you wonder whether they had a strategy or they were just executing by the numbers. Right. Well, so, and this is the thing, right? Why do you have bad execution? You have bad execution, right? When you, you, you don't have a common understanding underneath that stated purpose that you have are 10,000 decisions that you have to make every day. And you simply cannot have the leadership team deciding all of those things in advance or reviewing every single thing. Everyone in your company has to make lots of small decisions. Any one of those little decisions can get you canceled either by the left or the right. Right? So what does a company do? You create a culture that, number one, has a sense of empathy for the people beyond their walls. Back in 2019, I called that widespread empathy. Now, broadly, the word that we use for that is customer centricity. But it's like that intuition for like, what is the line and, and where are our customers? 
right? And so you have to you have to get to that. That has been incredibly hard for companies because of a couple of reasons. Number one, you, you know, we went out during the pandemic and we hired people all around you know the world, and we said you could just work from Zoom. It is incredibly hard to create a culture. It is certainly hard to create any sort of customer centricity when you do that. And what we find is, it, and this was true even 15 years ago, the more successful you are as a company, the more you tend to hire people who are younger, better educated, wealthier, and more diverse than the general population of America right, or the general population of the UK. So then you start to drift away from what's going on in the outside world. Without active steps to continue to create that empathy, you will have um, graceless execution. Right? You will have sloppy results, some of which might get you canceled. And that takes you to the third point which you made, Rishad, which is about leadership. right? Because suddenly then you need leaders who can think at a bigger scale, right? who can you know, understand all of the nuances. Uh, what does that mean, mean? It means they have to have that upgraded meaning-making system that you, you know, self-lovingly speak about. right? And so... You know, back in, in the 20th century, there was a whole series of companies that were really committed to leadership development and growth. These are the places where, you know, if your niece or nephew said, where should I go and work when I graduate? There was a list of companies, Procter & Gamble, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, IBM. These were the, you know, the great, you know, companies of the end of the 20th century that if you went and worked those places, they would teach you how to grow. They would teach you how to lead. Unfortunately, they're still running on the old model of leadership. They haven't figured out how to, to grow people to embrace ambiguity and to em embrace volatility, you know, it, like, it, like we need now. I mean, what we need right now are companies that are engines for personal and, and developmental growth that, are that if I join your company when I'm 22... I have a higher likelihood of being a CEO or a senator or a spiritual leader when I'm 52 because of the work that I do and how I, you develop me. And I can tell you who those companies were in the 20th century. I struggle to find great models in the 21st century. You're absolutely right. And I think you know, one of the keys that you know, the guest you mentioned who talked about the future of work, Heather McGowan, what she basically had said uh, was – that the way we were led is not the way we will lead, right? right. And, and right. what has tended to basically happen is the leaders of today were led in a different way. So to a certain extent, they have to unlearn as well as sort of learn. That's exactly right. And, and I don't know that there's a lot of great answers out there right now, right? I mean, the kind of stuff we see, you know, in, in the public square nowadays, whether it's the, you know, the MAGA guys on the right or the woke kids on the left, you know, it, it, it seems like one, one camp that lacks wisdom against another camp that lacks wisdom. Everybody fighting for their cause rather than championing the cause, which is our common humanity. It is. It is. Absolutely. Well, so we've now learned a little bit about, obviously, purpose and about trying not to just be living in the present. But all of that is built around, you know, your underlying basic belief of, you know, we have to learn and grow, but we have to learn, which is part of it. 
And you don't believe that learning is valued, particularly in the United States uh, or in business. And why do you say that? And what do we do about it? You know, Rashad, if, if you, one of the things that I think is fascinating is the number of CEOs in America nowadays who are of Indian origin, whether it's Sethya Nadella or, you know, take it, whether it's the CEO of Google or Adobe or FedEx, you know, across the board, it's, it's like, are these people just smarter? I don't think that's true. You know, we don't need to get back to some weird, you know, ideas about genetic advantage. I do think that there's something to be said for cultural advantage. One of the things that most stunned me in the time I lived in India, and I lived in India for about five years in my 20s, we lived not too far away from each right, other, exactly. as, as we've discovered in, in talking with each other, is that India is a culture that above else prizes learning. Right? You know, the thing I was amazed about is in India, if you're the kid who gets the highest score on, on final exams, what do they, they call you the class topper, right? And if you're the class topper, Everybody wants to hang out with you, right? You're the most popular kid. Like, you have the most friends. And I remember in my 20s going to India and say, I was stunned by this. I was like, this is insane. And my friends would say, why? Why Why do you think that's insane? I say, I don't know. In the U.S., if you get the highest grades in class, you're the nerd. Everybody beats you up. And my friends laughed at me and said, that's, that, that makes no sense to us. You're going to be the most successful in life. Of course you should be the most popular. We are a culture in the United States that values very good things like being on time, working really hard, getting up early in the morning. These are farmer values. Ooh, that's <laughs> These are great values for another century. Right. Or for right? farmers, which are, you know, 5% Or of the for US. farmers yes. today. But even farmers today are using like pretty heavy duty IT solutions to, to, to do their farming. Right. That value of like valuing right? What have you learned? We live in a country where we have politicians who are proud that they never read a book. <laughs> that is a better shame as a point of pride that they, that they hold on stubbornly to their views in the face of all evidence. This is a death sentence for us. I think you're absolutely right. And it's very hard to get better if you don't focus on getting better yourself. You know, it's one of those things, I think, with the growth mindset, which is when things go wrong and things get tough, you know, everybody says it's the constraints, who do I blame, etc. And as someone basically said, hey, listen, it's your life. You decide how you guide it. And if you decide to hand the wheel over to someone else, and all you're doing is you're putting your foot on the brakes, don't be surprised you end up in a car crash. It is a little bit like... You know, if anyone who's had a had a dog and, and, and their dog was sick and you needed to, you know, give them some medication, they always say, like, you know, put the pills inside some cheese and feed them some cheese, right? And honestly, Rashad, I, I think you do that on this podcast in a really wonderful way, which is, you know, just as well as I do, that you shouldn't make predictions about the future. You should actually figure out different things that might happen and then lean in with curiosity. But you also know that most of us are lazy and we hate to learn things. So you frame it as predictions, right? But then in the end, if it's a really good conversation, you give them provocations. 
Yes. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's yeah. wrapping the medicine in the cheese, isn't it? It is, it is. You know, it's because, uh, you know, we all grew up with Mary Poppins and she said <laughs> a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. That's right. I, th- I think that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, what are a couple of ways that people can get into this habit of uh, leading or, you know, uh, you know, something about, as you have mentioned, how do you feed your head? Yeah, here, here, here's a simple thing you can do, right? Which is every day, at the end of your day, look at your Google Calendar or your Outlook Calendar and just go through and color code every meeting, every activity that you did today. And code it, pick whatever colors you want. Pick, you know, you know blue if it was future focused, pick green if it was present focused, pick red if it was past focused, just for whatever colors you want, right? And then over the course of two weeks, start to notice where are you spending your time? Are you spending your time justifying the past? Are you spending your time managing the present? Or are you spending time actually creating the future? If you, if you want to lose weight, it's one of the first things that people tell you, start logging what you eat, right? Well, if you want to change your thinking, start logging how you think, right? and, and you'll start to notice and, and see if you want to make a change. So before I summarize, is there anything else you would like to share? I have just one question to ask you, right? Which is, what are the things that you do to push your thinking? I, I mean, it is rare to come across a, you know, a, a fellow traveler who is so committed to not only his own learning, but his own growth as well. What, what do you do to stay at the edge of your growth? Well, I, I sense there are two or three, which is assuming that I have fooled people into thinking that I'm still growing. But I think, <laughs> uh, you know, which is a bit of like, I mean, remember, I was a world of marketing and advertising, so we know how to do that. But, uh, you know, more, more, more realistically, I think there are a couple of things. The first is I have given this recommendation to everybody when I end all my talks, which is if you are not allocating one hour a day learning you are falling behind. And then often people, to your point, you know, talk about their physical operating systems, which are very important, you know, what you eat, whether you move around, because if you don't do that, you'll be dead. But okay, now that you're done, you know, what separates us from monkeys is not our physical operating system. It tends to be our mental and emotional operating systems. Mm. And, and so spend, you know, an hour in your mental operating system. You know, what I basically do is I actually have for years – allocated the first three hours of my day. I get up very early in the morning. It's an hour of basically learning in about 45 minutes to an hour of either swimming or running or doing something. And then 45 minutes of having breakfast with my wife. And so the days of success, I've learned something, kept myself alive and talked to somebody interesting. Oh, I love that. And it could be my wife, could be someone else. Very simple. And then whatever happens to the rest of your day, you don't even get that frustrated because the day is not a loss. I, I love that. I have my my daughter is uh, fifteen and my son is twelve, and since the time they were very little, you know, like you know, six and three, say, we would always er, every night at the dinner table we go around and we just ask three questions. We ask number one, uh, what are you grateful for today? And we all go around and and answer that. And then we say, um, what did you learn today? We go around and share, and we do that, you know, because then the the rest of us might learn it too. And then third, the, the most important question, how did you help someone today? And yep. uh, those, it, are all, it, those, are, those are so important, right? I feel like I, I'm, I'm ending my day the way you're starting it. 
Yes, well, that's that's you know whether it's the beginning or the end or even during the hours that makes all the sense in the world. So those are some of the things we do. We've had the opportunity to listen to Dev Patnayak, who has shared with us a lot of different things. Um, one and very very important is how we should continue to focus on learning, but learning and growing are two separate and different things. In order to learn, we need to both listen and repeat, but in order to grow, we need to do and reflect. And that is extremely important as we move forth in this world because we have to sort of, you know, also look at our calendars and think about how we spend time in the past, the future, and the present. And by spending and paying attention, we can learn more, and learning is critical, and it's something that both businesses and us are not doing enough of. In addition, he has talked about how we need to focus on the future in addition to learning about the future, and that only 16% of people are future-focused, 14 are past-focused, and 70 of us are present-focused. And we need to basically recognize we're going to spend the rest of our lives in the future and not to necessarily just be anchored in the past or just focus on the moment and the present. And we also had a conversation about purpose. And regardless of the setbacks or trauma of the moment, what is true is that people are not only just buying things, but they're buying into things. And purpose is a combination of strategy and culture and leadership and knowing where the lines are and then the lines are not. Thank you very much. Thank you. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.